My dear brothers and sisters, I'm thankful for the arrangement that the Lord made through fellowship with some of the brothers there in Ohio and elsewhere. And the arrangement is that I get to be with you in this kind of electronic way to honor the request to present a message mainly in a rather conversational way so that there is some something you could say recovered or remaining from the conference that we wisely needed to to cancel and so what I'll present with you and present to you will be an extract or, to use another word, the essence of what I had been burdened to cover in that four-message conference in Cleveland. And the general subject for that is living the Christian life under the government of God. Uh, this burden has been within me for, well, on the one hand, for many years. But more recently, in the last several months leading up to the December training, where there were messages given on this subject. I could not participate in that, but the burden remained. And in the earlier weeks of this year, I released messages in different places when it was fit to travel. Now we're just grounded and we take that as the Lord's sovereign arrangement. So the Christian life under the government of God. I recognize that the expression the government of God may not, in and of itself, uh, incite much interest. For some of us, it might make us cautious of what is this about, something serious, something heavy. Well, the government of God over the entire universe and especially over the earth and all the people on the earth and all the nations with Christ as the ruler of the kings of the earth, this is weighty. It is a heavy matter. But it has its source in God, in God's being, in God's administration. And we love God. We serve God. We have believed into him through his son. So anything that's related to God that he has revealed in the New Testament, which he did, in this case through Peter, should be something that we would embrace and receive 
according to the proper measure given to it in the New Testament record. And our Lord selected the Apostle Peter to be the one writing two epistles. That's all he wrote. And both of them are related directly to the government of God. And I'll give you a synopsis or a summary of that momentarily. But first, let's have a common understanding of what we mean by the government of God. It is not equivalent to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a realm. In this realm, there is a government. Just as we may refer to the United States, all the 50 states are the nation. That is a realm. But there is a national government located in Washington, D.C. with the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch. So the government is the ruling center in a nation or in the case of God, his kingdom. And God established this government as soon as he created beings with a will. And those first created were not humans. They were the angels at various levels. And that is when God's government began to be exercised. Then we know from our study in Genesis in the very early verses, that there was, in all likelihood, a pre-Adamic age with beings on the earth. Exactly who and what they were like, we don't know. They had a will. So the government now extended to the earth and to the inhabitants of the earth. And when there was this major rebellion led by the archangel who became Satan, the devil. And many of the angelic powers followed him. And the inhabitants on the earth also followed. God exercised his government through righteous judgment. And then only he knows the length of time when there was a restoration and further creation described in Genesis. And at the high point, he created man in his image with his likeness to express him. And this man was entrusted to represent God with his authority, to exercise dominion on the earth, once again, there is government. So there is in this universe, there is over the earth, 
a divine, mysterious, hidden government. But this is a reality. And as believers in Christ, we need to know this. We need to know our God as a will, according to which, in Revelation 4.11, he created all positive things. And he has a will that, wants, that he wants to have accomplished on the earth. He has a purpose, a plan, an economy that is being worked out through the ages. Over all of this, God has a government. And the center of that is the throne. And we know from the book of Revelation, the one on the throne is the resurrected ascended, glorified, enthroned God-man Jesus, who is the Lord of all. And he said of himself at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son of Man. So even as I am speaking this, and it's being recorded for you to see and hear, I'm under this government. I live under this government directly and through the human agents that represent God's government, like our human government. And we need to realize that the Christian life is a life lived to the Lord, to fulfill the desire of his heart, to accomplish his will, to fulfill God's purpose. This is why we are created. This is why we were saved. This is why we are here in the church life, in the Lord's recovery. We are living in a realm According to John 3, we have been born of God so we can see the kingdom of God. But unbelievers cannot see in our spirit, we can see. And we have been born of water and of the spirit so we have entered into the kingdom of God in the realm of life, as a realm of life. We're here now. Both the speaker and the listeners were all in this kingdom. In this kingdom, there's a government. And we need to learn from our brother Peter a particular aspect of the Christian life that was given him to write about. And that is the Christian life under the government of God. In 1 Peter, the subject is the Christian life and the government of God. In 2 Peter, there is um, a shift in emphasis 
It is on the divine provision and the divine government. So there is the government of God under which, and we have no choice, we are living. Not just as human beings, but as children of God. And with this realm in which we're living under God's government, there is a divine provision. Well, Peter, and we know him to the extent to which he is revealed in the Gospels, he was a very assertive person, a bold person, quick to take action. And we know a number of times he was disciplined or trained by the Lord Jesus, all of which were an exercise of government. The goal was to perfect him, to develop him. Then in his maturity, not long before the Lord's word in John 21 concerning him, that he would die as a martyr, and glorify God, he wrote these two epistles. And First Peter is especially addressed to the Jewish believers. Peter was an apostle to the Jews. Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles. Those are the, the only two regions of the work. And they were scattered throughout the Mediterranean area, And they were all suffering. So Peter wrote to them to give them a view and an understanding of what was happening to them and to all the believers throughout the empire. And then he brought to the front this view of the government of God. He was telling them, and we know from chapter 5, when he spoke of shepherding, he was shepherding them in the way he was commissioned in John 21 to do. He was shepherding them by helping them see you are living and you are suffering under the government of God. But with this government, there is a wonderful, all-inclusive provision. And so you need to learn how to live in this situation, realizing that God is exercising his government first in his own house, the church. So that, through the church, he may then advance to exercise his government over the whole earth, over all the nations, eventually over the whole universe. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Peter says in chapter 3 of Second Peter, there will be a new heaven 
just filled with righteousness. I just mentioned this word righteousness, and this is central, this is crucial, because the basic characteristic of God's government is righteousness. Everything he does governmentally is righteous. We know God loves, God gives grace, but we cannot say that everywhere, all the time, God must love this one or that one, or God must give grace to this one or that one. He's free to do or not do, but he must be righteous. And Psalm 89, verse 14, tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. If he would do anything contrary to righteousness, his throne would be shaken, his government would be nullified, and no way to rule over his kingdom. We will see, as I now go to one of the first message titles, The Christian Life and the Universal Government of God. We will see, actually, the will will become present tense. Now we need to see something revealed concerning our Lord Jesus when he lived as a God-man on the earth. In First Peter chapter 2, in verses 22 through 25, we read something very enlightening concerning our Lord. We know from the Gospels, he was reviled. He was the object of blasphemy. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub. But Peter used the word reviling, this evil, despicable speaking. But whenever he was reviled, he did not revile in return. What did he do? He committed everything to the righteous God. He recognized that he himself was living under God's government with its righteous requirements. And one requirement upon him in which he taught us concerning the kingdom life in Matthew 5 is not to resist, not to be fighting back to vindicate ourself. And so the Lord committed everything to God who judges righteously. And now, this Christ, who lived this way on the earth, he indwells us as the life-giving spirit. 
the life he lived in the flesh on earth. He wants to live again in us. He wants to live in us and then live through us, enabling us to live him. So he, the first God-man, lived under the government of God in every way. Now, we, his brothers, the believers, the children of God, sons of God, members of the body of Christ, we need to learn to live to righteousness. In that same chapter I referred to in those cluster of verses I mentioned, and elsewhere we're told Christ died on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we, the redeemed ones, might live to righteousness. So this is an aspect of the Christian life. And even to these suffering saints, they are suffering under the government of God. And Peter is indicating to them that the sovereign God would use even this suffering to carry out his righteous government and to make you perfected and matured. So Peter, in his first epistle, presents us a pair, government and the Christian life. They go together. And on the government side, the emphasis is, <coughs> just some phlegm, don't worry. Um, the emphasis is God exercising his government by judging with righteousness. His righteous government requires that he eliminate every unrighteous thing. And we are in the process of being saved in life, that is, of being sanctified, renewed, transformed, conformed. We have to admit certain aspects of our fallen being remain. We're still living outwardly in the old creation. Certain things we have said and done are contrary to God's righteousness. And the Lord wants to prepare us to not only live in his kingdom under his government, but to represent him, even to have the church execute his government through prayer. So, as 1 Peter 4.17 says, judgment begins at the house of God. And toward the end of the first epistle in chapter 5, Peter says, God resists the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. Be humbled under the mighty hand of God. So we need to see this side. Whenever God's governmental hand is on us, directly or indirectly through the environment, we need to live to righteousness by being humbled under God's mighty hand. Then, what follows that verse is the grace comes simultaneously. The abounding grace to supply us in our situation, to enable us to live to righteousness under God's government and the kingdom where the will of God is done and the kingdom that's a realm of righteousness. We're being trained to live here and to represent the government here. To strengthen this aspect of the the pairing of the Christian life and the government of God, Peter shares some very, to me, endearing, comforting, touching things like in chapter 1, he refers to the Lord, the one whom we have not seen, but we love him. And We've never seen him, but we believe in him and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We can testify. We're learning. In this government is joy unspeakable and full of glory. We're in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Elsewhere in the first epistle, Peter says, that commit your souls to a faithful creator. So even now, in the environment that we're all in, our soul is suffering, not only just due to the situation, but due to other factors. But we can commit our soul, our human person, to the faithful creator, In chapter 5, right next to his word about being humbled under the mighty hand of God, Peter says this, Cast all your anxieties on him, for it matters to him concerning you. Anything that matters to us, brothers and sisters, anything matters to him. And he wants us to bring it to him. Because his government includes caring for us. And there is somewhat a parallel passage to governmental dealings. And that is in Hebrews chapter 12. Where Paul talks about the father's discipline. The father disciplines his children whom he loves. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't discipline 
And the discipline is so that they would be become holy. Because without holiness, no one can see the Lord. So I've been exercising here in a rather less than formal way to present this thought. There is a government in this universe that's absolutely righteous. There is a government over this earth right now. The highest government is in the heavens. And we, the believers, are the first, you could say, subjects or the beneficiaries of this government. So we need to be willing to be humbled under God's governmental hand whenever it comes, to accept his will in our circumstances, whatever it is, to realize that judgment begins at the house of God so that the house of God, the church, becomes the means for our God to execute his government. Then, to say again, simultaneously, there is all-sufficient grace. There is the caring God. What matters to us matters to him. Yes, there will be the trial of our faith, like gold tried by fire. But the issue of that will be the salvation of our souls with an opening to the kingdom. So with this as the basis, I want to turn to some other aspects of the Christian life under the government of God. And the first one I'll consider is directly related to Christ. There's a wonderful verse in uh, 1 Peter 2, toward the end, where Peter says, we are like sheep, sheep that have gone astray. But we return to the Lord, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. I mentioned that in chapter 5, Peter addresses the elders in the beginning of that chapter and charges them to shepherd the flock of God. Then he goes on to say, shepherd according to to God. This implies the high peak of the divine revelation. The shepherd according to God, you must be God in the sense of having his life in nature. And surely Peter is shepherding this way in fulfillment of the commission given to him in John 21. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. So he is writing with a shepherding spirit. And surely he himself was experiencing 
Christ as the shepherd of his soul and the overseer of his soul. Well, we know from John 10 that Christ in the stage of incarnation was the good shepherd. He laid down his life, his suke life, his natural human life for the sheep that the sheep could receive the eternal life, Zoe life, that was in him. He died to release the divine life from within him to impart this life into us. And he mentions this in 1 Peter 1.3. It happened in Christ's resurrection before God. And then the Lord talks about there will be one flock and one shepherd. And this is a very, I use the word again, endearing and touching word. The shepherd of our soul and the overseer. So the Christ who was the good shepherd in his living on the earth is now the chief shepherd and the great shepherd in resurrection and ascension. And this shepherd, Christ himself, as the life-giving spirit, is in our spirit right now. And from our spirit, he's overseeing. He's not spying. But he's observing our inner situation. The complexities in our soul, in our thinking. The feelings the concerns, the anxieties, the pain, the wounds we've sustained. And based upon what he sees, he shepherds our soul. This is, to me, wonderful beyond words. That while we are living under the government of God, living this life in a pair, the government with its righteousness and judgment, but also with its provision, its grace, its supply. Now Peter draws our attention to a person. He seems to be saying to the suffering saints, let's turn to the person. There's a shepherd in us. He knows your soul is suffering. He will shepherd you, restoring your soul, bringing harmony into you, peace, rest, a sense of security. And this will enable your soul to function as the organ of enjoyment, to enjoy the Christ that you are experiencing. The experience of Christ is mainly in our regenerated spirit. The soul is the organ of expression and the organ of enjoyment. And the Lord 
indicated through Peter, joy unspeakable and full of glory. But very often, our soul and our soul life will deprive us of the joy unspeakable. There are just hindrances in our own being about which really we can do nothing. But there's a shepherd who knows what it is to suffer. He was called the man of sorrows. He knows what it is to shepherd. And he just welcomes our realization that he's now within us as the shepherd of our soul and the overseer. And other verses in the Bible talk about sheep. One verse says, it may be in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we're all like this. We're all sheep. So easy to wander, if not outwardly, inwardly. But when the Lord came as a shepherd, he realized 99 are here safe. One is missing. He didn't say, well, that's quite a high percentage, 99 out of 100. No. He sought that sheep until he found it. This is the shepherd in us. We in our mind, in our feelings, in the fears and the worries that grip us from time to time. We may take our own way for a while. But because the shepherd seeks us and finds us, we return. So under his government, we're learning to return to this wonderful person dwelling in us as the shepherd of our soul. I do believe, although I don't have outward evidence, this is just my personal belief, that for our dear brother Watchman Nee, at the end of his journey, And at the end of his years of confinement, he could testify, I have kept my joy. The more I think about this, the more I'm inspired and the more I'm touched. In the midst of all of that deprivation and suffering for decades, the shepherd of his soul, I do believe, enabled him to maintain his joy. Well, it's not likely that any of us will spend a long time in confinement like that. But we have the same shepherd in us. Even as I'm speaking with you here, in a message that's being recorded. 
I can share with you sincerely and say this unto him. Truly. He's shepherding right now. This is not simply a verse in the Bible. This is a reality of the Christian life under the government of God. (coughs) Then, in the same chapter, that is 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter reveals something truly remarkable. And what is revealed, we need to use with the ministry a particular utterance. And that is the reproduction of Christ. The reproduction of Christ. And our basis for saying this is Peter's writing. You can look it up in chapter 2. About how Christ is a model. Right? And we follow in his steps. Well, if we read this according to the natural or religious mind, we may think, well, Christ is the model. We should try to imitate him. We should try to be like him. We should ask, as a popular book more than a 100 years ago said, we ask, what would Jesus do? And we try to walk in his steps. But this is not the divine thought. The divine thought is reproduction. Well, what's the basis for this? Well, one is in John twelve twenty four. The Lord, referring to himself, said, If a grain of wheat abides alone, there's no benefit. The life within it is concealed. But if the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it produces many grains. And those many grains are the reproduction of Christ as the grain. Well, Christ is the grain. He fell into the ground and died to release the divine life, which is entered into us to make us the many grains. The same in life and nature as the Lord but not in the Godhead. And then in Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says, God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And on the day of his resurrection, He said to Mary, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Tell this to the brothers. Where did these brothers come from? They were born with him in resurrection. 
And these brothers will become sons of God, conformed to the image of the firstborn son. So we do have ground in the New Testament for speaking of Christ in God's economy reproducing himself in us. Of course, he remains the unique God-man. He will be the bridegroom. He will be our husband. He is God. We will never share in the Godhead. But in every possible way, he is making us the same as he is in life and nature. So now we're back to 1 Peter 2. And he uses a Greek word translated model. And that referred to a situation where children were learning to write, you know, letters, A, B, C. In, in, in that language, alpha, beta, gamma, whatever, okay? And so there would be a kind of clear piece of paper over a template that had these letters there inscribed. Then they would trace them in order to learn how to write them. And so... There is actually a kind of reproduction there. So Christ is the model of the one who lived the God-men life through the righteousness of God. Now he is operating in us to live in us, Galatians 2.20, to be formed in us, Galatians 4.19, and to make his home in our heart, Ephesians 3.17. In Romans 8, we have the law of the spirit of life. And the function of this law primarily is to conform us to the image of the firstborn son, the firstborn son is the prototype. And we are his reproduction. He was the only begotten son who became a man, the son of man. Then in resurrection, his humanity was uplifted into the sonship. So he became the son of God in a second way, the firstborn son with both divinity and humanity. In the Godhead, he remains the only begotten son. But in God's economy, he's the firstborn with many brothers, exactly the same as he except he is God with the Godhead. He is to be worshipped. This is a huge difference. So under the exercise of the government of God, the Christians that are learning to live 
righteously under the government of God in all the aspects unveiled by Peter, they will begin to have certain precious experiences. Their faith will be tried. They will continue to say, I've never seen the Lord, but I love him. I've never seen him. I believe in him. I give my whole life to a person I've never seen. And the more I love him and believe in him, the more I rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then we have his supply of grace. But as we consider this in the light of the entire New Testament, while outwardly and in a very practical way we are living our Christian life under the government of God, something marvelous is taking place in us inwardly if we open to the Lord. Christ is living in us. He's not just there residing. He is living. He's the shepherd of our soul, caring for us. He wants to spread from our spirit through all the parts of our soul to be formed in us. This involves maturing in the divine life. Then he wants to make his home in our heart. This wonderful person, not visiting, but dwelling permanently, making home in our mind, emotion, will, and conscience. This is the reproduction of Christ. And this is one marvelous, glorious effect of our learning to live the Christian life under the government of God, our doing so facilitates, it enables this process of becoming a reproduction of Christ to advance. We need to put these pieces together of the whole puzzle of God's New Testament economy. And we need the pieces from Peter's writings, along with Paul and John and others. So to this point, we have seen that as Christians, we need to live to righteousness under God's government. We need to be humbled under the mighty governmental hand of God. We need to accept the will of God for us in our situation, even if that involves certain sufferings. At the same time, we receive his supply, his grace, his tender care. Then we saw 
that he is the shepherd of our soul. Even while the father is disciplining his children, he is loving them deeply and has provided a shepherd for our soul to care for us. Brothers and sisters, everywhere, in everything, at every time. Oh, if our eyes were open to see the connection between the shepherd of our soul, the grace of God, and the government of God, I believe we would be buoyed up in our spirit. We would be strengthened. Our faith would be enriched. Our love would be deepened. Our joy would increase. Now we come to one other matter. And this is in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. And this is a matter of enjoying and experiencing the divine life and especially to grow in this divine life in order to have a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. This is all in the first 11 verses of Second Peter. And just as a reminder, I point out, the subject of Second Peter is the divine provision and the divine government. And this divine provision is intrinsically and essentially connected to the development of the divine life and the divine nature within us. So Peter opens by saying, we all have received like precious faith. We know from Abraham's experience, explained by Paul in Romans 5, that our great, great spiritual grandfather, Abraham, is the father of faith. He learned that God and God alone is the unique source. And he brought him through all kinds of experiences until he just would only believe that he at a hundred almost, his wife almost 90, would still have a child. He's the father of faith. This faith did not originate with him. The God of glory, we know from Acts chapter 7, verse 1, appeared to him again and again, transfusing his element into Abraham. Eventually, this element, now infused into Abraham, would rise up in him to be faith. Faith is a gift from God. We all have it. 
We all have the same precious faith. God's economy is in faith. Every aspect of our life in God's economy is a matter of faith. We follow Paul. By faith I live. By faith I stand. By faith we walk. By faith we speak. So this is the starting point of our spiritual development. By faith we believed into the Son of God, the embodiment and expression of eternal life, and we received this life through the exercise of faith mentioned in Romans 10. We believe that God raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So after Peter refers to this precious faith, he goes on to say that we also are partakers of the divine nature. And and the partaking of the divine nature involves, on the one hand, our fleeing from the lusts of this age and our clinging to the many promises God makes in his word. But the focus is, we're a certain kind of person now. We are partakers of the divine nature, the totality of God's attributes, his characteristics. So it's through faith we have life. And by, we also partake of the divine nature. Then Peter traces the development of the seed of faith. There's no need now in little time that remains. But I would encourage you actually to read through both epistles again as you have time. And you'll see following 1 Peter 1, four. Peter charts this development. And he mentions certain virtues. And eventually... He approaches the, the highest stage of development. But just before he reaches there, he mentions brotherly love. Now there is in us brotherly love. And Peter emphasizes this. In First Peter, love one another out of a pure heart, truthfully, love one another. And this becomes an issue that is a result of living the Christian life under the government of God. Our love for the brothers is developed, it's perfected, that we have the same love for every brother and sister. 
But that is phileo. Peter goes one step further. Love. Agape. Agape. Love. That is the sign of maturity. Then, Peter connects this process of the growth in life, this development of the divine life, with the partaking of the divine nature. He connects this development. There's something that I know is very crucial inwardly for all of us. Anyone who ever learns the kingdom truth, the truth concerning the kingdom of the heavens, the truth concerning the thousand years of the kingdom, the age of righteousness, and also learns that not all believers will be qualified to be co-kings during the millennium. It's the overcomers, the matured, victorious believers, the overcomers, they will be in the kingdom. They will be in the wedding feast. They will be the bride. And surely, we all long for this. But please allow me to say, I can't say all, only God knows that. But I know myself and many, many others, as we consider our condition, our history, As we get older, we wonder, will I ever be able to enter the kingdom? Will I ever be able to be an overcomer? Well, Peter talks about our having a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. A rich entrance. In other words, it's not just barely making it. But a rich, that means it's it's complete to the full. There's nothing lacking. And what he does is this. He shows us, and he seems to be saying this. This is his thought. As we are living to righteousness under the government of God, receiving grace as we humble ourselves under his hand, the divine life within us is growing from one level to another, from one stage to another. Eventually, we reach maturity, agape, 
In Matthew 5.48, the Lord said this, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brother Lee's footnote in the recovery version on that verse points out that the context indicates that this is to be perfect, as the Father is perfect in his love. It's when we reach this stage that we are the most constituted with God. Love is the nature of God's essence. Love is the inner content of God's being. And we are becoming this through a normal process of growth in life. Look how all of us became mature human beings. We didn't labor. We didn't struggle to grow. There was laboring and struggling about certain things, but that didn't cause the growth. The law of life within us produced the growth. Well, as we live under the government of God, with its both requirements and provisions, we are in this process. And this process will bring us to its consummation, to its full development. And this full development of the growth in life will then become for us a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. That will be the fulfillment of a desire deep in all of us to stand before the Son of Man and to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Master. How we long to be invited to the wedding feast as part of the bride to be one of the co-kings reigning on the earth according to what he measures out to us. Here we have the way. Brothers and sisters, we will grow into the eternal kingdom. We have been born into the kingdom of God. Now we're in the kingdom of God, doing the will of God, under the government of God. And the divine life is growing. The more we open, the more we respond, the more the life grows. It brings us to maturity, to love. And then this is the entrance. This is something I can say, I believe this. I believe Peter's words. They're words of God. They're part of the divine provision for the divine government. So here we are with various degrees of understanding and experience because we're all learners. We are living in a particular situation under our human government with much restriction and much proper concern about our well-being. But even this 
is under God's government. He will overrule it. He will direct it. He will limit it. And eventually he will stop it. So outwardly, we're like all the other citizens of our country living under this. But inwardly, brothers and sisters, simultaneously, we're in another realm. We are in the kingdom of God as the realm of the divine life. And we are under the government of God with its righteousness and justice carried out by judgment. And we're learning to live the Christian life under God's government. And then as we learn this, we realize what a provision we have. So may I bring this to an end by just pointing all of us again, (coughs) all of us again, to the righteous one on the throne, to the God of all grace, to the shepherd of our soul, to the prototype who's making us his reproduction, to the divine life and the divine nature that's in us. Let us just open afresh to our dear Lord, to our sovereign God, and live in his will, in the kingdom, under his government, casting all our cares and anxieties on him, humbling ourselves under his hand, receiving his abounding grace, experiencing the reproduction of Christ as the firstborn son in our inner being, and then growing in life for a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. Dear brothers and sisters, from my heart to yours, from my spirit to yours, this is my word tonight regarding the Christian life lived under the government of God. May the Lord bless you in every way, at every time, in every matter, in every situation, until we all enjoy this rich entrance. Praise his name. Amen and amen.